So tonight we have a special treat. We have Dr. Tisherman. He is the Director of Trauma and Critical Care Medicine um, for the Simulation Center. So he does a lot of education with us as well as a lot of research. Some of his research I'm sure you're going to be seeing here in the near future um, it's going to tie back to EMS to help us get through that critical resuscitation period. So one of those studies um, he's going to talk about actually is the emergency um, preservation for resuscitation. So he's going to touch on that a little bit and I'm sure you'll be hearing about that in the future. Well, I hope you all enjoy Dr. Tisherman and without further ado, I'll let him take the stage. Thanks, Lauren. Good evening. So I pose the question here of hypothermia, friend or foe, because what I hope to do is talk about hypothermia in general, both the issues of exposure hypothermia, uh, as well as how we might use or try to use hypothermia therapeutically uh, with some of our patients. All right, so I have to disclose I'm a co-author on a patent. It's like the weakest patent that was ever granted by the patent office for emergency preservation and resuscitation, which is what we'll get to at the end of this whole thing. Um, we've got some grant support from the Department of Defense, and I'll be talking about some uh, use of saline cardiopulmonary bypass, which is not exactly standard. Okay, so we'll start with the more typical problem that you might see. 20-year-old um, <clears throat> female, Found in a snowbank on a Saturday morning, no external signs of trauma. She's kind of poorly responsive, no history available. Disregarding the topic today, <laughs> what do you think about? And, you know, obviously it's cold out. She might be hypothermic, but you got to think of some other stuff. What are your priorities? You know, the answer to that is always ABCs, right? Okay. So... We'll get into some more detail here about this kind of patient. In fact, actually, this patient scenario I'm throwing out there is, I mean, it's not that uncommon, but I got a call from my, my sister who happens to live in Potomac, and I was still in Pittsburgh at the time, and she said, oh, the daughter of one of our friends is in one of your ICUs. You might go check on her. This is on, like, the Saturday morning, and she was a Pitt undergrad who was found in the snow, and ended up in our ICU. But we'll come back to her in a little bit. So what I would like to do is talk about exposure hypothermia, and we'll go through a little bit on the recognition of it, physiology, management, then get into very briefly what we know about hypothermia and trauma, which kind of plays into the exposure stuff. And then about the last half of this will be therapeutic hypothermia, where are we today? So we'll start with exposure hypothermia. How do we lose heat? We have four different ways that we talk about this. conduction, convection, evaporation, radiation. So it's just you know touching the other things that we're touching, convection, which is why you know having a cool breeze will cool you down, and that's why you have convection ovens to improve efficiency of heating things, uh, evaporation from sweat, and then just radiation to the environment. Those are the ways we use heat, lose heat. And those are important to keep in mind. If you have somebody who's hypothermic, you don't want to minimize further loss of heat. How are you going to stop these things and insulate them and keep them from getting colder? What are the risk factors for exposure to hypothermia? <clears throat> one of the biggest ones, one of the biggest risk factors for any of us to see patients is alcohol and its effects. So actually, this is just kind of uh, an interesting quote that I found when I was just touring around Old Town, San Diego many years ago, 
uh, and this is on like a little plaque somewhere. In very cold weather, abstain entirely from liquor. While on the road, a man will freeze tissue as quick while under its influence. So over 100 years ago, people recognized it wasn't a good idea to drink when you're traveling. This is before you were drinking and driving. <clears throat> so what is it about the alcohol? Well, if you're drinking a lot, your body won't shiver as it normally would, which shivering is not necessarily a good thing anyway, but you don't shiver. You have vasodilation, so if you're vasodilating, you're going to lose heat because you have more blood flow to your skin. Poor nutrition, oftentimes alcoholics usually, I mean, some of them have big beer bellies, but they may have poor nutrition, which leads to um, decreased liver function and other issues that could play into maintaining temperature. And then finally, maybe actually maybe the first thing is poor judgment. I mean, they don't recognize that they're getting cold, don't go inside, do some crazy stuff. But there are some other contributing factors. So this is important. If you get called to see somebody who's just kind of found somewhere in the hypothermic, think about the other issues. And there are a number of them. Obviously, exposure is a key one. Age, you know, little tiny babies get cold really easily. Elderly get cold very easily. They have decreased ability to maintain normal temperature. Nutrition, health in terms of neurologic diseases. Anybody who's had traumatic brain injury, stroke, spinal cord injury. Uh, endocrinopathies, anybody who's hypothyroid, hypoadrenal, can't maintain temperature. Um, I remember there's a the patient that was in our hospital, been in and out for a long time, who had some pituitary issue, and his normal temperature, hanging around the hospital and talking, whatever, was 34 degrees. So that messes up your thermal regulation. Sepsis, burns, any kind of really bad skin diseases. And then we get medications that can impede the body's ability to maintain normal temperature, uh, like benzos, barbs, general anesthesia, sedation, all kind of stuff that we do to sick patients, as well as what they might do to themselves. So if you're thinking about, is this patient really hypothermic, you've got to make sure you get a good temperature. got to get a core temperature. And if you look at the literature of hypothermia, there are lots of terms out there, mild hypothermia, moderate, severe, profound, all kinds of things. And every author picks whatever terminology they want to use. There, fairly recently, the Swiss staging system came into uh, more general use. So it's kind of useful. It's becoming more uh, universally applied. Uh, obviously, the simplest thing is make sure you talk about the specific temperature that the patient has. But stage one, two, three, four is kind of useful. So stage one, 32, 35, not a heck of a lot going on, except the patient's probably shivering and just not feeling very comfortable. Stage two, start having some more mental status issues, level of consciousness changes. Usually by the time you get down below 32-ish, maybe even 33, people don't shiver. Then when you get even colder down in the mid-20s, that's when people really are unconscious, not shivering. You might not be able to feel a pulse. You might not be able to see the breathing. So if you're examining something, somebody that's that cold, you got to really watch for you know 30 seconds, a minute, to see if there's any breathing or any pulse. And typically, when you get down to the low 20s, there's not much going on that looks like life, which doesn't mean the patient isn't resuscitatable. So we're going to go through more specifically to the organ system findings. So in terms of neurologic stuff, uh, the, I think it was NIH or some organization started uh, warning people or educate people about the 
early signs of hypothermia, and they came up with this umbles. And it's basically just some mild neurologic confusion, but having but stumbling, mumbling, fumbling, grumbling with the umbles. They even have these nice little water bottles. Um, so that could be an early sign of hypothermia. Obviously, there may be plenty of other reasons somebody could have some of these umbles. So it's not at all very specific. As you get colder, though, people tend to get agitated early, then they get more lethargic, then they're just comatose. On the positive side, as you get colder, your brain and the rest of your body, but the brain is the most sensitive organ in terms of lack of oxygen, lack of blood flow, uh, you decrease metabolism, needs for oxygen in the brain, which we take advantage of when we talk about therapeutic hypothermia. When you get down to the low 20s, if you actually were to put an EEG on somebody, you wouldn't see any um, brain waves. Uh, but, you know, depending upon the circumstances, that patient still be, could be saved. The other important thing, though, is when you've got some neurologic findings, and particularly if it's somebody that's just kind of found somewhere, not only do you think about, you know, what drugs they have on board, but what else happened to them? I mean, the patient maybe has a head injury, and that's why the patient's been lying in the snow for the last several hours. So in terms of when the patient gets to the hospital, it's critical to do more of a, a routine kind of trauma workup. From a respiratory standpoint, typically people get tachypnic early on, and then they get bradypnic, and then at some point they stop breathing. Again, that's related to what's going on with the brain, because as you're becoming more comatose, you lose the... Um, incentive to breathe. The other big problem that you run into is patients get a lot of secretions. It's pulmonary edema, it's bronchorrhea, there's a whole variety of pathophysiologic reasons for it, but it happens. So you're going to get tons of stuff coming out of the endotracheal tube if the patient's intubated, or they're going to be coughing stuff up. And basically, like a lot of stuff early on in managing the hypothermic patient is similar to anybody else. If the patient can't maintain their own airway, or they're not breathing, then you got to manage the airway, whether it's you know superglottic airway or intubation. You know, depending upon what what you're able to do, you got to do something to help them out. <clears throat> so cardiac changes, the classic thing that you probably never will see is the EKG changes of the so-called J or Osborne wave in the EKG complex. It's there. It's not that exciting by itself. You know, you hopefully have other means of knowing the patient's hypothermic. But the other issue is that you can pretty much have any other arrhythmia you can think of. So atrial fibrillation occurs, atrial flutter occurs, bradycardia occurs, particularly when you get down below 32. Ventricular fibrillation occurs as you get down in the mid-20s and then asystole below that. So anything can happen pretty much from a cardiac standpoint. And so if you patient has no pulse and you don't currently have a reason not to try to do something for the patient, typically you need to start CPR. Again, you need to feel for the pulse for you know, a good 30 seconds to a minute. And if somebody's got a temperature in the high 20s and the pulse is 20, that's probably okay for a little while. Just get them to the hospital. Now, in terms of therapy from a cardiac standpoint, <clears throat> for the most part, things get better when you warm the patient up. So atrial fibrillation is usually probably no reason to treat that. It'll go away when you get them warm. Ventricular fibrillation, you know, obviously you're going to have to do CPR. Typically, you're not going to be able to cardiovert somebody if they're below 30 degrees. 
there is some thought of, well, what the heck, try one shock and see if it does anything, but chances are good it's not going to do anything. Asystole is asystole. You're going to, um, you know, again, if you don't have reason to believe that the patient is not salvageable, you're going to do what you can, get them to the hospital. And Brady rhythms, uh, you know, there's the one sort of suggestion, and it's not like people have done big randomized controlled trials of this, is that a transcutaneous pacer may be better than transvenous because you put the transvenous pacer in there, tickle the heart a little bit, and now you take a Brady rhythm, which wasn't great, but wasn't so bad, and now you got VF. So transcutaneous pacing is fine, and certainly in the field, that's what you're going to do anyway. Now, one really important piece of this is drugs. We typically, if we're giving a drug for an arrhythmia, if it doesn't work, we will give some more of that drug or try a different drug. So if the drugs don't work, then you probably need more. In this case, that's probably not a good idea. Because all that's going to happen is those drugs are going to be sitting around. They're not going to work, and you can give them all you want. It's not going to make a difference. And then as the patient warms up, now they're going to be toxic on the drugs. So if you do try a little bit of some drugs for an arrhythmia, keep it to a little bit. If it doesn't work, move on. Just get the patient warmed up. Kidneys, now this is less of an issue pre-hospital, but uh, there is this hypothermic diuresis that, or cold diuresis that occurs. When you vasoconstrict, you vasoconstrict your arms and your legs, and now all your blood volume or more of your blood volume is in your central circulation, the kidneys and the body thinks that you actually have too much fluid around. So you have less effect of ADH and you actually will increase urine output. That's a problem because you also have a lot of capillary leak with hypothermia, so now the patients are getting puffy and edematous, and they're peeing out fluid. Bottom line, they get hypovolemic, so you got to make sure they get fluids appropriately. And certainly, coming back to somebody who's been lying in the snow for several hours, you got to worry about rhabdo and, and uh, muscle breakdown. Acid-base stuff, this is just some basic physiology. As you lower temperature, and you measure blood gas at lower temperatures, PaO2 drops, PCO2 drops, pH increases. Does that really matter? Not really clear. There, there are two schools of thought, and this, again, something that's more something that comes up in the emergency department or in the ICU, uh, but two schools of thought of how to manage blood gases with hypothermia, and the literature on this is mostly from cardiac surgery where they intentionally cool people down and do operations. There's one approach called so-called pH stat, where you actually measure the temperature or the blood gas at the patient's actual temperature, or you calculate it as if it's the actual temperature. So if somebody's at a temperature of 30 degrees, and you actually run the gas machine at 30 degrees, you will get different numbers than if you just normally put the blood gas into the machine, because the machine normally raises the temperature to 37. So with the pH data approach, you actually will correct for things based on the patient's body temperature. Alpha stat, um, you just put the blood gas in the machine, let it run, and deal with whatever you get. And it seems like that actually may have better outcomes and certainly makes it real simple. Because then you don't do any other calculations or do something funky with the machine. So the simple answer usually is if you're getting blood gas, just run them normally and deal with the numbers you get. 
Now, electrolytes are an issue, and specifically it's potassium. When you're cold, potassium will shift into cells. So you're, if you measure potassium in somebody, it's low. When you then warm that patient up, the potassium comes out of the cells, back in the circulation. So that's okay if you haven't done anything in between. But when the patient's still cold and you see the potassium's low, you give them a bunch of cal- uh, potassium, and now you warm them up, and more potassium comes out of the cells, suddenly the potassium's going to be higher than you like. So the general rule is you don't want to replace potassium until you get them warmed up. Blood changes, and this is certainly one of the big issues with the trauma world, is coagulopathy. And basically, clotting factors are like any other enzymes. The lower the temperature, the less they work. Platelets also don't work too well. They get sequestered and lean in other places. And then there might be some increase in fibrinolysis with uh, hypothermia. For the most part, and again, this is kind of difficult to study, just like the blood gases, because the machines you use will warm the blood they take from the patient up to 37 degrees. Bottom line, patients get coagulopathic as you get hypothermic. But best I can tell, the, the specific effect of hypothermia isn't that significant until you get below 34 degrees. Now, I mentioned drugs when we talked about cardiac stuff. And here's the problem. The problem is you never know how drugs are going to get metabolized and eliminated. Some will just stick around for a lot longer, some might not. You really have no idea. So the short answer for any drugs you're gonna give somebody who's hypothermic is be very careful. Little bits, titrate to what you only need, and don't give more than that. Okay, so uh, back to our young lady. This 20-year-old female in snowbank, poorly responsive, no history available, so ABCs. So what do you think? Intubator, not intubator, go to the hospital. She's breathing. Yeah, it depends a little bit too. If she's breathing, yeah, and she seems to be maintaining airway, yeah. Kind of a low threshold just to intubate people. Um, but otherwise, get to the hospital, right? And if she's got a pulse, go with it. Um, So one thing about having a pulse, too, and this, uh, you can find different answers to this question. One thing that that people talk about a lot is if you got somebody who's really cold and you shake them up or you intubate them or you do something else, that you might induce ventricular fibrillation. There's some studies that have shown that doesn't really happen, but I'm pretty sure it happens every once in a while. But, you know, that's why if you got to do something, you got to do it. Just don't play around with it. Just get it done. If she's not breathing, not maintaining an airway, you got to do it for her. <clears throat> okay, so let's say she's fully responsive, so, and you're a few blocks from the hospital, so just load her and bring her up to the hospital. So we talked about a little about intubation. And, and obviously ventilation, breathing after that. Circulation, um, you know, if there, there's no pulse at all, whether it's, you know, V-fib or pulses VTAC or assist, you got to do CPR. They will need fluids. So you got to give them fluids. And certainly if you can, which is 
we mostly once they're in the hospital, use warm fluids can be a good idea. And and the other key thing too is think about why the patient got hypothermic. You know, you're gonna be doing you're gonna do your resuscitation, but at the same time you think about, you know, what is it about this person that led them to be hypothermic? You know, this in this case, was she on some drugs? Was she drunk? Was there something else? So how do we warm people? <clears throat> uh, so there's some simple things. You can wrap them up in foil. <laughs> you can just, and this is passive external rewarming, because all this is doing is trying to prevent them from losing more heat. Uh, you can get more active rewarming. So immersion in warm water is really effective. It's kind of messy. Um, if the patient arrests when they're in the water, you kind of, and it's V-fib, <laughs> then you got a little problem. Um, so that's not usually the way it goes. Although there was a warming or temperature controlling device called a thermosuit that was kind of like a little kid's um, swimming pool sort of thing that you know you blew up and have a, a ring around and it was big enough that a person could lie in it in, in water that was circulating at whatever temperature you wanted. It's kind of messy. I can't, don't think it ever caught on, but... Uh, but it is effective. Uh, other ways of, action, of actively external warming people, warming the environment, which is great for the patient, horrible for the people in the room that have to take care of the patient, but it's something we can do. Um, heated air convection blankets, the bear hugger is really effective, very efficient, um, very useful. Heating pads like the Arctic Sun, other kinds of, there are a lot of devices around that can help active external rewarming. Now one, and I think this is really way more theoretical than it actually happens. There's this concept called afterdrop. Have you ever heard of that? Never heard of it. Afterdrop. It's like it's like the weirdest name for something. But yeah, so you're warming the person up, and they got these really cold extremities, and then as the extremities start getting more perfusion, the cold blood that's been kind of sitting there and stagnant comes back to the core. And so the core had been warming up, and then it drops. And then it warms up again. The, with our current things like bear huggers and Arctic Sun that do very, very efficient external rewarming, uh, it seems, seems like this almost never happens. Uh, I'm not sure it really happened that much without those devices. But it's a theoretical thing. And th I mean, the theory goes one step further that this drops temperature enough that the patient who is kind of okay suddenly develops an arrhythmia because the core temperature just dropped. So it's important to kind of evenly warm the patient up. Now, the next step, if you have something that's even colder, you might think about active internal rewarming. So there's some very simple things you can do there, like just if the patient's on a ventilator, you can humidify or heat the humidified oxygen and air that's going through your ventilator, warm IV fluids, very effective. Uh, people have done a whole bunch of uh, techniques for heating irrigation of various body parts. You, know, you put in a nasogastric tube in, you can flush warm saline or water on the stomach or in the bladder. Uh, the colon seems a little bit messy, but people have done it. Uh, you can even be invasive about it, like put a chest tube in and irrigate the pleural space with fluid. You could put a catheter in the peritoneal cavity and irrigate it. Um, there's actually a device that's been uh, tested in some clinical studies that kind of screws into the abdomen 
to get into the perineal cavity. And I'm, I'm, my, my uh, background is as a general surgeon. So when I first heard about this, I just kind of foresaw this thing poking into the bowel. But supposedly they have good data on it. And once you get in there, you can just flush a whole bunch of warm fluid into the perineal cavity, drain it out. The perineal cavity has a huge amount of surface area. So it can be very efficient as long as you don't poke anything. Um, another device that is uh, gaining some traction in the U.S. because it just fairly recently became available is this esophageal cooling device. It can be cool or warm, but it's basically like an nasogastric tube that uh, has sort of a sheath around it that you can irrigate either warm or cold fluid. And actually, they, they were smart when they developed this thing because they made it so you can hook it up to the regular um, water blanket controllers that we have in the hospital anyway. So you don't need a special device to make it work. Uh, so that's right. So you got a lot of choices. It's kind of a matter of whatever you happen to have. And then one of, this is one of my favorites is an intravascular device. This is basically it's a central line that has a little sheath around it that circulates water, and the water is controlled either warmer or colder than the patient's temperature, either warm up or cool them down. Uh, in the hospital, it's very efficient, very useful. Uh, and in extreme circumstances, if you've got somebody who's in cardiac arrest, you can use VA ECMO. So you're actually taking the patient's blood out, warming it up, and giving it back to them. And the warming rates kind of go through that list I just went through in that order. So uh, simple external warming, you can come up on a degree or two an hour. And then when you get more aggressive lavage of things, you're moving it up to four, six, nine um, degrees an hour. So the more invasive you get, typically the faster you can warm people. So the colder they are, if they're in a rest, you probably do want to get them warm faster. So one important question that does come up is, can people be cold and dead? Because we talk about they're not dead until they're warm and dead. Are people that are cold actually could be dead? So here are some guidelines for that. Injuries that are incompatible with life, that's pretty obvious. Uh, if the patient started off with normal thermia and had a cardiac arrest, you know, when you're in cardiac arrest, you tend to become poikilothermic and your body temperature drops. If now you're hypothermic because you've been, you haven't been resuscitated from cardiac arrest, that's irreversible. Uh, very, very low pH, pH less than 6.8, that's not purely from a respiratory standpoint. One of the, one of the specific things a lot of people hold, hang their hat on, which again, you're not going to have in the field though, is potassium level, potassium greater than 12. That means your cells are dying, which means you're dead. Uh, and basically, if they're so rigid or frozen that you can't move the chest wall or do things, probably not going to survive. So let's walk through a little of this as a review. So if you have somebody who's got vital signs present, so we'll go down the left-hand side here. Then the next question is, do they have impaired consciousness? So no, you know, let them warm up. They're going to be fine. If, the, if they have a pulse but impaired consciousness, then the next question is, are they, do they have hemodynamic compromise or high risk of that by being less than 28 degrees? If they don't have that, you can just actively rewarm them and they'll probably be okay. But in somebody who's really like either arresting or high risk of ventricular arrhythmias, it's probably good if you have the capability anyway of taking the patient to a center that can use ECMO. Uh, or cardiopulmonary bypass. The patient doesn't have a pulse, then the next question is, do they have obviously irreversible problems? Then that can be an easy, 
Answer if they if that's yes. If no, then you gotta start CPR, do something with the airway. You know, you might give one little squirt of epi, you might give one shot, but don't belabor it because it's not gonna work until you get them warm. The other next question then is are they cool because of the original problem as opposed to the cold being the problem? So if the answer is they're cold because they've been in normal thermic arrest for a while and they're just cooling down because you can't resuscitate them, or if they've been in an avalanche less than 35 minutes, which is, that's an aside here, but that suggests that actually they asphyxiated because you, if you're under snow for just 35 minutes, you shouldn't be that cold to arrest yet. Uh, major trauma certainly, um, you know, if they've been in arrest, that's probably not survivable either. If they're cold, don't have a pulse, but you don't have any of those exclusions, which are over here, then, and if potassium is not so bad, you can try to save them, and that's where ECMO can come into play. So the short answers are that, you know, if you, the patient's in arrest or potentially about to be in arrest, it's best if you can get them to a place that can put them on ECMO. Um, otherwise, at least get them to a place where you can actively rewarm them to get them warm so you can get them out of their arrhythmia or prevent a worse arrhythmia. Questions? Good. So, actually, I, I've kind of started off my this case story a little easy, saying she was just kind of poorly responsive. But in fact, by the time she got to the hospital, she was in full arrest. And this is just a, an interesting case because it's a testimony to how protective hypothermia is and how good it is to be young even if you aren't necessarily smart. So this girl was found on Saturday morning, came to the hospital in arrest. They put her on ECMO, warmed her up. Later that day, she was decannulated. I actually saw her the next morning, extubated, talking to her parents, and asking when she can go back to school. Actually, her parents were the ones asking about going back to school. I'm not sure if she wanted to go back just yet. But uh, so the point being is if you arrest from hypothermia, you know, early on at least, there's a great chance of, of saving you. A couple other points about um, hypothermia, then we'll move on to therapeutic stuff. So drowning is one important subset of hypothermic patients. Risk factors tend to be males, which is true of most things that are related to stupidity. Uh, being young also plays into that same scenario. Uh, Pre-existing conditions can play into it. Alcohol, like a lot of things. Um, Ineffective safety barriers, like you know, not blocking small kids from getting swimming pools. And then there's the shallow water blackout syndrome of people that do dives that will hyperventilate so that they don't have to breathe for a longer period of time. If they get hypoxic while they're underwater, they can lose consciousness and then obviously not be able to get themselves up. We had a critical care fellow in my previous location who came from Hawaii and he did this this free dive, so they go down like 100 feet or more and, I don't know, fish and do whatever down there. And uh, he was doing this, and his friend saw him lying on the bottom, and they weighed themselves down so they could get down there. And he was on the bottom. But his friend, fortunately, saved his life, brought him up, but he had like full-blown ARDS and everything. He showed us pictures of him on a rotoprone bed because he was in the ICU. Uh, so it's a real problem that, you know, it's salvageable if you get the patient out of the water quickly. In general, particularly if the water's cold, as long as they've been in less than an hour, the recommendation is to try to resuscitate them. And there have been reports of people underwater for longer than that in ice cold water. One of the things that comes up is do they inhale water? 
Uh, about 15% of people actually get enough laryngeal spasm that the lungs are dry, which is a good thing in terms of take managing later on. If they do get water in the lungs, there used to be all these things about, well, salt water did one thing and fresh water did something else. People cannot get that much water into their lungs to affect serum electrolytes, whether it's salt water or fresh water. They will drown, they asphyxiate, and then have a rest long before that happens. So that's not really an issue. The issue is all the damage to the lungs. Um, so basically the thing is to do the ABCs, get them to the hospital and warm them up. Frostbite, localized you know, freezing of tissues. The management is minimize the exposure to the cold, minimize any additional trauma. Don't massage the, the injured extremity. And immersion in warm water is the best management. And from our standpoint, when the patient's in the hospital is, we wanna wait and see how much tissue is alive, what's dead, and then only debris or amputate what we absolutely have to. So some key points on exposure hypothermia. First thing is recognizing the patient's cold. Think about the physiologic changes that we've gone over. Rewarm the patient, ABCs. Drowning for the most part, unless you know the patient's been underwater for a really long time, go for it, you know, try and resuscitate them, particularly if the water is cold, and then frostbite immersion and wait for debridement. So any questions about the exposure hypothermia? So let's touch just for a few minutes on hypothermia and trauma and then get into therapeutic stuff. So when we talk about trauma patients, trauma patients are very predisposed to hypothermia. They're predisposed because they're exposed, we expose them, the first thing you do in the TRU or in the emergency department is cut off all their clothes, right? And then we operate on them, and so you open up to the air and they get cold. They have lost blood, we give fluids that may or may not be well warmed, and they have limited ability to produce heat because of shock, because of sedation, anesthesia, because they're on drugs, because they, have, they were drunk, all that leads to hypothermia. And if you look at the, what we teach everyone in the trauma, we worry about the so-called triad of death, which is acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. All these kind of act together to make the patient more coagulopathic, so they bleed more, and then they get more hypothermic, and then they get more coagulopathic, and they get more acidotic, so they bleed more. And you can see how this kind of keeps cycling around. And that's why trauma surgeons do what's called damage control operations to stop bleeding, get out of the operating room, warm the patient up. And if you look at the research in this area, certainly there's a whole bunch of studies looked at increasing injury severity, lower the temperature of the patient, increased mortality. That's pretty clear. That is an association. But really, is it the injury severity that's leading to mortality, or is hypothermia itself having an impact? And the answer is, I don't know. We, in, in Pennsylvania, looked at the whole database across the state of Pennsylvania, all the trauma centers, and tried to throw all kinds of information into a statistical model to see if hypothermia independently was associated with increased mortality, and in fact, it does seem to have an association. Even if you throw in injury severity, age, mechanism, all kinds of stuff. Which that means that if you get hypothermic less than 35 degrees, your risk of death is three times that of you if you stayed normal thermic. Is it because you got hypothermic? That part, don't know. But that's why in the trauma world, our dogma, our standard approach, and you know, the current treatment is we want to keep the people warm, warm uh, and that's what we do. Uh, in you know, as warm as you can in, in the ambulance or, and when they get to the hospital, we're going to try and keep them warm. 
well, we'll come back to questioning that toward the end of this. Now, switching to switching gears. So hypothermia's got all kinds of bad problems. You can get real sick if you have exposure hypothermia, but how can we use it therapeutically? And I'll posit to you that there's a big difference between exposure hypothermia, where you shiver, you get um, um, catecholamine surge, all kinds of bad things happen when you get hypothermic. These are Napoleon's men lost more men to disease and hypothermia than battle. Versus therapeutic hypothermia, where we control it, we prevent the shivering, we prevent the stress response, and it could be beneficial. So, do any of you know how, and this is a quick aside here, but you'll like the video, I think, um, how mouth-to-mouth resuscitation was shown to work? <laughs> we'll cut to video. He is being ventilated by mouth-to-mouth breathing. This is a anesthetized, paralyzed volunteer who's a surgical resident at the time. The the and that's Peter Saffer doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on him. cc's of air are possible for the following reasons. First, the operator produces an open air passage by supporting head and jaw. He can determine the adequacy of ventilation by watching the So now he's demonstrating how not to do mouth to mouth. the inflation and by hearing exhalation. Dr. Saffer is always a teacher as well as an Second, innovator. Inflation pressures are adequate and can be adapted to the resistances encountered. The oximeter attached to his ear measures the relative arterial oxygen saturation, which was 97% when he was conscious and breathing naturally. Okay, now hold your breath. This medical student performed mouth to mouth breathing for 30 minutes. Without interruption. Medical students are really see strong in the back corner, then. This is 1960. Now she stops ventilation in order to demonstrate how rapidly the oxygen saturation drops during apnea. This is the part where I get chest pain. Within 30 seconds, it begins to drop. Usually, there is not <laughs> right, time you want to, to say, get start, start. Inflation of the lungs should be started immediately. Now start. One, two, three, four, five. And she's going to pass out from my <laughs> Seven inflations, and the oxygen saturation is back to 95%. Now I'd like to say they went to live happily ever after, um, but I don't know. I know that he actually. Um, was the director of surgery at the VA in Pittsburgh and then in a place in New York. So as far as I know, no injury from this, or at least he could still be a general surgeon after all this. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because Peter Saffer is known as the father of CPR. And actually, that, that was done at Baltimore City Hospital, which is now Hopkins Bayview. At the same time, people at Hopkins were demonstrating external chest compressions work. So the two things came together as the ABCs uh, as we know it. This is actually one of the first descriptions of the ABCs from Dr. Saffer in 1961. And I'll point out that he's got airway, breathing, circulation. Then he goes on to drugs, EKG, fluids, gauge. And then down here at H is hypothermia. Start within 30 minutes, no signs of CNS recovery. So the idea that someone who's had a cardiac arrest could benefit from being cooled has around since the early 60s. But it wasn't until these two studies came out in 2002 where there were two randomized trials 
but cool people to 33, 34 degrees who were comatose after pre-hospital cardiac arrest and found that they did better than the patients who had normal temperature. And that's when we started cooling people who weren't waking up after cardiac arrest. And there's a lot of enthusiasm for this. This is actually a picture from somewhere in Europe where the, uh, the medics had heard about hypothermia being a good thing, figured that the sooner they started it, the better. And they had this patient, there's a patient under there, that had, they were sustained from a cardiac arrest. They piled frozen French fries on top of him to start the cooling process. Great idea. So that became you know, an exciting thing, that actually something seemed to improve outcome from cardiac arrest. But then in 2013, Nicholas Nielsen and his group uh, in Scandinavia showed that when they controlled temperature very carefully at 33 or 36, it didn't make a difference. Exactly the same survival and neurologic outcomes. So the latest Heart Association guidelines suggest if you have someone who's comatose, meaning they're not following commands, uh, and this is for adults, kids are a different story. <clears throat> what we should do is targeted temperature management. That's the current going terminology. 32 to 36, pick a number somewhere in there. And you want to keep them at that temperature for at least 24 hours. And, and I was actually just at a hypothermia meeting a couple weeks ago and talking to actually Dr. Nielsen was there and some other people involved in this stuff as well as some of my former colleagues in Pittsburgh. And I think for the most part, some people will still say, if this patient's really bad neurologically, I'm gonna cool them down more. But we really don't know that that's the right thing to do yet. So there's a lot more needs to be done. And they're actually contemplating another targeted temperature management trial that'll hopefully answer some more questions about this. Um, and the other thing that people try, like this, well, this frozen french fry trial, but people did do some cold IV fluids that they would take out in the rigs and start some cooling in the field, the Heart Association kind of poo-pooed this, but there's actually some decent data that not, that's not a bad thing to do. But they're saying it's not, it shouldn't be the standard at least. <clears throat> so that's kind of where we are with cardiac arrest. More to come, I'm sure. Head trauma is another area that's been of great interest. So. You probably don't recognize this picture, but this is the uh, Canadian moose crash test for cars. That this, this bundle of stuff is about the weight of a moose, and moose are pretty dumb, and you hit them in the legs of your car, and then the whole body of the moose comes through your windshield. And if you were the driver, you would end up with this head injury. <clears throat> so there have been multiple studies of cooling patients after traumatic brain injury. The first one's done in this country, a multi-center trial. It's called the National Acute Brain Injury Studies Hypothermia, or NABISH. So NABISH 1, cool patients 32.5 to 34 for 48 hours. Overall, no benefit. A question of maybe beneficial if they were less than 45 years old. And we as intensivists taking care of the patients, and I could say we because we were one of the sites at the University of Pittsburgh, if we were doing a good job of taking care of everything else, like maintaining blood pressure, preventing hypothermia, or preventing, sorry, preventing hypoxemia, preventing hypotension, all the other bad things for the brain, there seemed to be some benefit of hypothermia. But the problem was they had a bunch of other centers who weren't so good at it. So that was Nabish 1. So they said, okay, Nabish 2, or son of Nabish as I've called it, <clears throat> start the cooling faster, 
Start with people only less than 45 years of age. Limit it to the people who are really good at maintaining all the other stuff normal, which included us in Pittsburgh. And when they did that, they found that there's a benefit if you had an epidural or subdural that needed to be drained. And if anything, it made you worse if you had diffuse brain injury. So now there's son of son of Nabish, which is, undergoing, is currently underway, of looking only at people who need a subdural drained. So I don't know where this is going with, with brain injury. You know, maybe it works on Tuesday if the moon is full and you happen to have left-sided subdural. Um, it's a little, it's hard to really understand it totally because lots of good laboratory study, it looks like it should work, blah, blah, blah. Something about either with the way we're implementing or something that's different about humans doesn't seem to be working. So this is cooling right up front. The other way that people use hypothermia, traumatic brain injury, is using it when the intracranial pressure is high. So this, this would not be a pre-hospital trial. I should say, actually, Nabish 2 at one of the sites in Houston, they actually started cooling in the helicopters. So they were really trying to get it up front, but that didn't seem to matter. The other way you can use hypothermia is once the patient's in the hospital and now you're monitoring ICP, you see the intracranial pressure goes up, should I cool them or should I not cool them? Along with all the other stuff you do for high ICP. So this is the Eurotherm study, uh, obviously done in Europe, uh, multi-center trial by Peter Andrews. And they had a control group. They got the usual kinds of therapies for high ICP. And then they had the hypothermia group that cooled down. And then they could still get these other therapies if they needed them. And there was lots of excitement, thinking this was the day that was going to prove the hypothermia works. And it didn't. So these are the, the um, uh, odds ratios for um, having a good Glasgow outcome scale, so neurologic function, good um, you know, surviving, not having pneumonia, all those kind of things. All these numbers actually are pointing toward benefit of staying normal thermic. So Peter Andrews was at this meeting a couple weeks ago too. He's, they're still trying to figure out why this is the case. So in the TBI world, a lot of, there's not a lot of interest, there's still a lot of interest, but um, not clear where hypothermia is gonna play a role. And it is, but what I think they've learned is they gotta answer some of these questions. Because different, I mean, not all head injuries are the same. I mean, a young kid who gets hit in the head with a baseball, has an epidural that gets drained, could be totally comatose and awake and about to leave the hospital the next day. That's very different than the guy who crashes his car and has diffuse external injury and all kinds of badness throughout his brain. So that's one thing, you know, early, immediately after injury versus using it later when they have high ICP. You know, what temperature should they use? How long? How do you titrate it? A lot of questions still to be unanswered, still need to be answered. Spinal cord injury, there's even less data, similar interest because you're still talking about neurons, you're still talking about central nervous system stuff. If hypothermia could be good for one part of the nervous system, could be good for another part. So there is a case of one, at least. Uh, it's the Buffalo Bills player, Kevin Everett, who suffered a spinal cord injury on the field. And <laughs> this is a great picture, because that's his neurosurgeon, Andrew Cappuccino. <clears throat> so the one thing I didn't know until I heard about the story is that the NFL supports, I mean, uh, aside from all the stuff about concussions and head injuries, 
they actually have supported for a long time the Miami Project, which in one of the things they do is looking at spinal cord injury as well as TBI in the lab. So they call up the guy who runs the Miami Project and say, hey, we got this guy who's got a spinal cord injury on in the field. What can we do? And he said, well, why don't you cool him? Okay, never really been tested in trials and patients. So he got steroids. He got early decompression by Dr. Cappuccino, and he got cooling. And as you can see, he's standing up. Clearly is hypothermia, right? Um, so we don't know. The Miami Project is looking at this. They've had a trial. This is some early data from their trial of taking people who have uh, American Spinal Injury Association, or Asia A. You know, the Asia scoring for spinal cord is like the one test you don't want to get an A on. A means you've got absolutely no function below a certain level. E is what you want. <clears throat> so they take somebody who's got no function and they randomize them, cooling or no cooling. And they have seen, and this is a small study so far, they haven't, they're still doing it, some people who went from A's to higher levels. Is it going to be the answer? I don't know. But it's another area of interest, ongoing trials. Stroke, not much to say except there's some ongoing trials. <laughs> Again, it's the brain. Maybe there's a benefit. We'll see. Um, these are some of the trials that are going on right now. Acute myofarction. You know, you know the, the interest in all this hypothermia has been mostly focused on the brain and the heart because they're organs that really don't like not having blood flow, not having oxygen for, for a very long period of time. So there might be some benefit of decreasing metabolism. And the other thing about hypothermia is it's not just oxygen needs, but it decreases a whole bunch of other stuff like free radical, but I can give you a whole scientific thing about what else it does. It's not just the um, oxygen needs. But so for the heart, you know, might be some benefit there. The heart needs oxygen. And I just put this list of studies up there because they're great names. You know, if you're, if you're going to do a clinical trial, if you can, you got to come up with a catchy title for it <laughs> so that people catch on. So like chill MI, I mean, hey, well, that's great. Or rapid my ice, cool MI. Velocity, I don't, I'm not sure how that one came up. That's actually using that little device I was telling you about with the screw thing to go in the peritoneal cavity to cool people down. Anyway, this is actually a meta-analysis of all these trials. So far, no great benefit. Now, there's been some interesting, some other things, and I just listed a couple here. Acute hepatic failure. You know, if you have fulminant hepatic failure, like from a Tylenol overdose, uh, or viral hepatitis or alcohol, anything that leads to acute hepatic failure. The reason you die, if you die, is often because of brain swelling. So there's been a lot of interest in using hypothermia to decrease that brain swelling, get you to survive long enough to get a transplant or for your liver to recover. So that actually is done. There's been little bit of studies. It, people have done and do it routinely in some institutions. ARDS, there's some interest for, you know, um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Sepsis, there's been some interest. There's actually a study going on now in Europe, the cooling and surviving septic shock study. But I didn't know this until I heard about this study a couple weeks ago. There was actually a study, the use of hypothermia and septic shock, 1961, R.A. Adams Cowley was on it. So this place has always been way ahead of everybody. But this quote is actually a good one. Hypothermia permits the patient to tolerate cellular hypoxia and give added time for treating the underlying sepsis. Hypothermia performs no wonders. Maybe that's what we're finding with all this other stuff. 
So how do you do it? It's kind of the same, you know, the same device that you can use to warm somebody, you can use to cool people. So that's really not um, that much of an issue. What is an issue, though, is shivering. If the patient, I mean, if the patient's really comatose after cardiac arrest, they may shiver. Usually when you get them down to like 33, 34 degrees, they'll stop shivering. TBI, they may not shiver too much either until you get, or they may shiver a little bit, but once you get them down to colder temperatures, they stop shivering. But one of the issues, uh, and we can prevent all that, we sedate them and give them neuromuscular blockade. If, you, if you're doing some kind of core cooling, like the intravascular catheter I showed you, and then you put a warming blanket on people, you can kind of fool the body into not recognizing the cold so they don't shiver. So the problem though, and this may be one of the issues with the stroke patients and MI patients is, those patients are awake. So how do you take somebody who's awake and sitting there talking to you but maybe has a neurologic deficit or maybe has chest pain and cool them down without them getting really unhappy with you. So a couple of my, my colleagues back in Pittsburgh actually have been doing some studies sort of on each other as well as some other volunteers of um, actually studying them because they'll actually put like full-fledged monitoring on them, monitoring blood pressure and pulse socks and all kinds of stuff uh, and then seeing what drugs do to allow them to be sort of happy getting cooled. So several years ago, they did a study with diazepam. More recently, dexmedetomidine has been working pretty well. In fact, one of my friends presented a little bit of this data at this meeting a couple weeks ago, had a picture of him with all monitored up and cooled down like 34 degrees and just kind of chilling out, so to speak, on some decks. Um, so it's an interesting problem that you know, one of the side effects of cooling is shivering and people are getting um, stressed out from it. And if they're awake, you got to stop all that stuff. So maybe that plays into what we're seeing clinically. All right, what about hemorrhage? So now we're getting into the really cool stuff. Um, so you know, I kind of mentioned earlier on that in the trauma world, hypothermia is to be feared. We dogmatically want to keep people warm. So we get coagulopathy, we get shivering, we know that's a bad side. On the good side, though, decreased metabolism, decreased free radicals, decreased all kinds of other stuff. I mean, there's a whole list of stuff that gets better. So maybe there could be some benefit of hypothermia in the trauma patient, in the patient who's bleeding. So let's say you got this scenario. Young male, multiple gunshot wounds, tachycardic, hypotensive. This is actually a picture of the old TRU from like 20 years ago. Um, and as it's coming in and you're trying to evaluate the patient, this is what you see on the monitor. So what do we do as trauma surgeons? What we do I mean, obviously, managing airway, we're giving fluid resuscitation, blood products, but the other thing we do is that? The other thing we do is a thoracotomy. And the reason we do that is that we're hoping we find something to fix, plus we can directly squeeze the heart, plus you can occlude the aorta, so whatever blood is left will now go to the heart and brain. The data on the success of this is pretty bad. This is Peter Reed's review from 2000. Overall, 7% survival. Uh, here, I've actually looked at some of the data. It's like 5% because a lot of it's based upon how often you want to try to do this. I mean, the more you try, in patients who are likely to die, you're going to have more people who die. But it's dismal. So the problem is not something we've figured out how to fix. 
So let's get to a way that we're going to look at how we might be able to fix this problem. So the, back in the late 80s, Peter Saffer, who I mentioned earlier, showed doing mouth-to-mouth, and Ron Bellamy, who's um, uh, in the U.S. Army during Vietnam, looked at this data from the Vietnam War of at what time point did soldiers who died of their wounds die? And there are people who are dead immediately. They've got stuff we can't fix. They're not the ones we're going to try to save. But if you've got people who are dying in 5 to 30 minutes, 30 minutes to a couple hours, that's a time frame where if you had some novel therapy, you might be able to save them. The other important piece of this puzzle is they actually often had injuries that were fixable. So this brings us to the notion that if we could do something to pickle them, to do something to kind of slow the badness down, get them from point A to point B, and then stop the bleeding, maybe we can save them. So this was going on right around the same time we and others were looking at some hypothermia after cardiac arrest in the laboratory. There were reports of people who had cold water drowning underwater for an hour or more that could be saved. And then for 30, 40 years, cardiac surgeons have been using hypothermia to allow them to stop all the blood flow in the body to operate on the heart. So maybe it could help us in the trauma world. So we now call this emergency preservation and resuscitation, which basically means we're going to protect, preserve the patient, the whole body, for hopefully two hours or more to allow us to transport them to a point where we can stop the bleeding. And then once you stop the bleeding, then you can do a delayed resuscitation. And hopefully save people who otherwise had lethal injuries. The key thing is all we're trying to do is buy time. Buy time for the surgeon to get hemostasis. Certainly the brain is the most important organ to, to save because after just a few minutes of no blood flow, you start having neuronal death, you have brain damage done very quickly. Early on, we thought about putting a balloon up there to initially just flush the brain, but it's hard to do that from the groin. It's hard to get good flows with that, and this kind of looks like resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, or ROBOA, which is now being used. Uh, but And this part of the idea of doing this actually was the same idea of Reboa, that if you had the balloon there, you might be able to stop bleeding distal to it, but get the cold flush going to the brain and the heart. What we found with our laboratory model is that you really need to cool the whole body, so we kind of, we got away from this balloon thing. So this is the animal model. I'm only going to show you a couple things about lab and move on to clinical, but so in the animal lab, we bleed the animals down to the point where they had no blood flow, we induce ventricular fibrillation, so we know there's absolutely no blood flow. Wait a couple minutes, then flush the whole body, ice cold saline. All we do is just plain old saline, and then get them down to whatever temperature we wanted for that experiment. And then we wait for a period of time. We went from 15 minutes up to three hours. And then at that point in time, if they're really cold, you got to resuscitate them with bypass. And we used uh, basically closed chest. Uh, heart-lung machines kind of system to, to resuscitate them. And we'd wash them for three or four days to really get a good outcome. So you know, during this arrest time, the animal's cold, no blood flow, not breathing, not doing anything. We'd go off and have lunch and come back and resuscitate them. In the clinical world, what you do is stop the bleeding during that period of time and then put them on bypass. So what we found was as we needed to get longer and longer arrest times, we needed to get colder, which kind of makes sense that the colder you are, the more you can tolerate not having oxygen, not having blood flow. We did do one really important study where we compared, this is after a really long period of bleeding to the point of arrest, 
and we actually did CPR in some of the animals. Uh, and even if CPR failed, we then put them on bypass. But as you can see in the CPR column, they all died. This is the overall performance category where one is good and five is bad. So CPR never doesn't work. Um, and this is actually really good CPR. Good, we gave them back their own blood, good blood pressure and all that. If we then, instead of doing CPR, just flushed them with cold saline and left them there for another hour of no blood flow in, in what we're talking about with EPR, and then after we resuscitated them, kept them a little bit cool for 12 hours, they did kind of okay, but it had some neurologic problems. If we kept them a little bit cool, that sort of mild hypothermia to cardiac arrest for 36 hours, good outcomes. So based on, I mean, there were a whole bunch of other studies we did, there's a whole bunch of other studies that uh, Peter Ree and Hassan Alam did in, in labs, both in Uniform Services, Mass General. Uh, but we all agree, we've got all this stuff in the lab, it clearly can work in the laboratory, it's time to try this in patients. So we've put together the EPR-CAT trial, the Emergency Preservation Resuscitation for Cardiac Arrest from Trauma, and I was briefed to go through these issues of the other centers, the protocol, training, consent issues, and then and funding, which we have. Uh, push the right button there. So we actually uh, had this up and running for a while in Pittsburgh, but it went on hold um, more because the cardiac surgeon who was helping us left the institution than I left, so the thing, this, things kind of just um, went on hold there. We actually, as of last week, have IRB approval here. So I'll tell you what's going to be happening here. And we're looking at some other sites. University of Texas Houston, most specifically, uh, will likely be our next site uh, if we can get some more funding. Specifically, what we want to do is quickly identify people that might be candidates for this. So we, and we want to get them, we're trying to find the right balance between letting standard therapy work versus waiting so long to do something new that it won't work. That makes sense. So we're trying to find that right window of opportunity for where we can have a benefit. So we want to identify them within five minutes of losing a pulse. We want to then start this and get them down to the, the temperature with the brain temperature, tympanic temperature of 10 degrees. Once, we, once the trauma surgeon gets control of bleeding, then we put them on a full bypass, full heart-lung machine, cardiac surgeon, perfusionist, all that to resuscitate them, and the, certainly the goal is they survive and don't have significant neurologic deficits. Right now, we're looking just at penetrating trauma victims, 18 to 65 years of age. They have to have had signs of life within five minutes of getting to the emergency department or to the TRU, uh, or lose a pulse in the ED or in the operating room. And we open the chest, don't get them back, we can say, okay, we're gonna switch to EPR. And the exclusions are kind of the reverse of some of those things. We don't want people who've had massive trauma, brain injuries, um, and any kind of study like this, you want to exclude pregnant women and, and prisoners. And this is so this is kind of a similar model to the diagram to what I showed you in the patients and the animal lab. The patient's blood pressure dropping, temperature starting to drift a little bit. Lose a pulse, we open the chest, don't get them back, start the flush, get them cold, get them in the operating room, get control of bleeding, and then resuscitate them in delayed fashion and warm them up. I won't go into a lot of details of the technique, but they're going to get a big incision to get good exposure. We'll put a big K on the aorta, do this flush, we're just 
drain the right side of the heart to to drain out the venous side of the flush that we're putting in them because we're going to be putting like 30, 40 liters of saline into them. We just got to drain that out. And again, the goal is to get the brain down to 10 degrees. Outcome, survival discharge without major neurological is number one. That's the primary outcome. But we're also going to look at direct complications, coagulopathy, organ failure, and long-term survival and long-term functional outcome. So, <clears throat> This is not something trauma surgeons normally do. It's not something perfusionists normally do, not something cardiac surgeons normally do. So we need to train people in how to do this. So we did, we did a first training session with a, a large animal here. And this is actually several years before I, I came here because uh, this, this was always planned to be the, the second site for the trial. Um, so this is a happy group that did the first training session here. Now one of the things about this is it's hard to train adequately like 20 different trauma surgeons and how to do this. So there are five that have been trained here. The thing is if the per a person comes in who meets the criteria and one of those five surgeons is on call, then we can say, okay, we'll do EPR. If that same person comes in and some other trauma surgeons on call, then that could be a control patient. And what the FDA recommended in how to do the studies Get 10 EPR patients, 10 control patients, look at the data, and then we'll move on from there. So that's how it's not really randomized, but we do have a little comparison group to look at. So here's a, um, a nice demonstration of how we can practice this with simulation. This is actually a little video clip from the BBC. 24-year-old male, two gunshot wounds to the chest, one, two, three, lift. And down. Assisting ventilations, gunshot to the right chest, gunshot. This patient's been shot. He's lost so much blood, his heart has stopped. I don't have a carotid pulse. No femoral pulse. Lines I have no in. pulse. Medic, can you come and do CPR, please? The ER team are trying everything to get his heart working, but they're getting no response. Nimit, do you have? I'm getting no cardiac activity. Let's initiate EPR. 32, okay. What they do next is extraordinary. Initiate cooling. Yep. We start bringing the temperature down. Pump's ready to go. They slowly pump the remaining blood from his body and replace it with ice-cold saline solution. This induces a state of severe hypothermia. And this computer's a little too slow to run the video. But, um, so one of the issues of doing a study like this is obviously we can't get consent from patients, so it means we have to advertise what we do and get out to the community, we do community consultation, public disclosure, and by doing that, sometimes what we put out there gets picked up by various news outlets, which is why the BBC did that little clip as part of it. It was a longer story on hypothermia. Um, and I'll also let you know, you just met my whole family. I had trouble getting some actors to do this. It was actually very useful, because the trauma surgeon actually was one of the trauma surgeons, and one of the fellows helping her, and the perfusionist walked through it. It was very helpful to do that, but I couldn't get enough other people. So the emergency physician was my wife. The two medics were son and daughter. We're both in medical school now. And then the other woman who was sitting there looking kind of lost was her other daughter who isn't interested in medicine. But, <laughs> but she did a good job. So obviously there are a lot of regulatory hoops with this. We had to get approval from the FDA. We have a data safety monitoring board, institutional review board, and we had to do the community consultation public disclosure. So again, this kind of got picked up by various outlets, like the New York Times. This came out in the New York Times my second day working here. So I quickly met our media people. Um, 
And the other thing you have to do is give people the option of opting out. So if they hear about this in the news uh, or an ad somewhere or wherever, they can call us or go to the website, ask to have this bracelet that says, don't let Dr. Tisherman touch me. Um, and that, that's you know, part of the, the process. Uh, we also got a little um, fame from TV. In which case, all bets are off. So that was, I don't know if you've seen the, this TV show, but the very first episode, very first patient um, got EPR. And he lived. And I'll... Well, no, we got two, because Gray's Anatomy did it too, and that patient lives. So I think we're two for two. The IRB hasn't bought that yet, but, but he's right. Hypothermia is an experimental thing, and that is a man on the table. Um, we're not going to kill him to save him, but anyway. Um, so it's out there. So we're moving forward. We basically have everything together here, and we'll... We'll, have, we'll be issuing another press release soon to say that we're actually open for enrollment uh, within the next week or so. <clears throat> so, to kind of bring this around to what's going on with therapeutic hypothermia. So cardiac arrest, the standard thing now, if you've got somebody who's comatose after cardiac arrest, is targeted temperature management, 33 to 36, until the next study is done and we potentially change that. I think one of the issues is that people have to figure out some kind of biomarker to tell me or tell us this patient should be 33, that patient should be 36, this patient should be cool for 24 hours, that one should be cool for 48 or whatever. We don't know any of that. TBI, which, which patients to select, how do we titrate it? Spinal cord injury, study's still going on. Stroke, study's still going on. Acute MIs. Pulmonary hepatic failure. That's, in some places, that actually is pretty standard. More on ARDS steps to come. And then for the exsanguinating trauma patient, we're going to start the trial here, and uh, we'll see. Hopefully, we'll have some success. We know that what we're currently doing does not work well at all, so hopefully we'll be able to improve upon that. So hypothermia, friend or foe? Yes. How's that? Thank you very much. I'm happy to answer any questions. So the question is about, in the field with somebody who's got a cardiac arrest, is there some benefit of doing some external cooling with some cold packs in the groins, neck, wherever you can put things? Uh, well, the answer from the Heart Association right now is that there's no indication for pre-hospital cooling. So they've looked at that, and in terms of the latest guidelines, they've not suggested to do that. Um, there, there has been some more positive data with the ice cold IV fluids, if you actually took a couple liters of cold ringers or you know whatever crystalloid you want, and you gave it to somebody, there has been some size of demonstrated some benefit. But overall, heart says no, and probably even less so for just putting some external cold packs. Maybe if you cover them totally with French fries, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but no. Right now, the the answer is no. Um, 
you know, if you had, if you're in a situation where you have a much longer transport time, you know, it's hard to say. And for the most part, I'll, I'll, the only the other caveat to that is people who've had a cardiac arrest tend to cool kind of on their own. So if our target is 33 to 36, chances are pretty good as you're transporting them, they're already down to 35, 36. Body habits, body, yeah, so body habits certainly can play into it. Exactly. Time of year, you know, a lot of things play into it. Other questions? Well, good. Well, thanks very much. <laughs>